please turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we're reading verses 5 to verse 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, picking up in verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, where your king, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, your word tells us that if anyone should lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Lord, we come before you asking that you might give us wisdom. We need this wisdom for life, for godliness. Help us, Lord, to heed the wisdom of your word, to apply it to our lives and that we might also encourage one another to wear the crown of wisdom and live the good life as it is defined to us in your sacred word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes continues the contrast that we saw last week, this contrast between wisdom and folly. And throughout Ecclesiastes, and certainly in Proverbs, but as we've been looking at these words of wisdom the past couple of weeks, one of the things that we continue to see is that wisdom is the crown of the good life. So if 
for whatever reason you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. Because it all essentially just ties together. It's all running under the same string. And it's the applicational thrust continues to be the same, and that is value wisdom. Get wisdom. Have an appetite for wisdom, because wisdom is the crown of the good life. So the preacher continues to contrast wisdom and folly, and he gives us here several proverbs. Now, a proverb is just a a short saying that expresses a general truth for practical and godly living. And the wonderful things about proverbs is that they're just immensely practical, and some of them are quite easy to understand, and many of them also just require some contemplation, some deep thinking to understand what the proverb is actually about. But many of them are very easy to understand and very practical. So we continue this contrast between wisdom and folly, and the good life is the life of wisdom. And so if we would heed the word of the scriptures, if we would live a life that is pleasing and honoring to God, then we would do well to live the life of wisdom. But the life of wisdom is not without difficulty, which we'll see later on. But first, consider the way of the fool and the way of the wise. The word says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So as we, continue the, as we consider the contrast between wisdom and folly, this passage gives us a picture of the person who's characterized by folly, and that person fails to weigh the consequences of their actions. And certainly, we've been there. We've made mistakes. You perhaps might carry regrets with you that could have been perhaps avoided if you had simply given thoughts to the consequences of your actions. But there are certainly times when, perhaps driven by passions, we come with, up with a wonderful idea or a great idea, and we just run with it, and perhaps we run with the idea in an unwise manner, and then there are consequences that come about that we wish were not the case. But a wise person gives thoughts to their steps, does it mean, of course, that you'll know everything to expect? It's not, not like we are God and we can have this foreknowledge to see what will come about with absolute certainty, but we sort of work with what we got. We try to understand our actions and what the possible repercussions of our actions might be. So as the preacher continues to give us a picture of the good life, the good life is lived by the one who, con- who considers the consequences of his actions, but it's not just, but anybody can do that. Right? The preacher is also considering the life of the secular person. Certainly, you don't have to be a believer in God to consider the consequences of your actions. But he is contrasting the wise and the foolish. And according to the scriptures, the one who is characterized by folly is one who fails to heed the word of God. And the one who lives a life of wisdom, one who lives in the fear of the Lord. 
But the one who walks in folly is like a person who tries to break through a wall. Walls in the ancient times were built by just putting stones together without mortar. But the thing about those kinds of walls is that it made it perfect places for snakes to hide. So you find if a person was trying to break through a wall, perhaps trying for, for perhaps maybe for malicious intent, trying to get to the other side to break into someone's house, they break through the wall, they might find that snake comes out and bites. So in the same way, or in this way, this person fails to consider the consequences of his actions. Not just that, but this person might also be characterized by a carelessness towards consequences. Maybe they have been advised or warned against the consequences of their actions, but they don't care. It doesn't matter to them. Because they're driven by their folly, driven by their passion, driven by their flesh. Now, if we wish to live the good life as defined by the Scriptures, yes, it is wise for us to consider the consequences of our actions, but even more so, it is wise to consider the consequences of sin. Because sin certainly has its consequences. Here in the passage, we have he tells us about a pit. He who digs the pit will fall into it. A pit in the scriptures oftentimes is a proverbial picture of poetic justice. So for example, Psalm 57 verse 6, the psalmist says, They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Psalm 7 verse 15, He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he has made. The point of those psalms and the point of the passage here in Ecclesiastes is that sinners in their sinning dig up their own pit of destruction. Because sin is like a boomerang. That once the sin of boomerang is thrown, eventually the boomerang will return. And you're not able always to tell when that boomerang will return. And God makes it so that the sin is returned upon the person who threw it. We have here also the image of a snake. In the scriptures, sometimes the snake can be an image of lurking retribution. In Amos 5.18, speaking of the day of the Lord, as received by those who walk in a godless way, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. Or take, for example, the Apostle Paul when he was shipwrecked with other sailors and they landed on an island and the snake bit him in the hand and the people there thought with his divine justice, this man certainly has, must have done something wrong. And therefore, God has visited his sin upon him. But Paul was an innocent man, and so nothing happened to him. And we have other examples in scriptures. Joab, a general of God's army, 
killed two righteous men. It was decades later when his sins was visited upon him and he lost his life. Shimei was a man who cursed King David with a grievous curse, got away with it because David was gracious to him, but later on, many years later, he paid for it with his life. The point is, is that sin is like a credit card. And every time you sin, it's another charge, another charge, another charge. And the bill comes due, always. It always comes due. So as we read the passage here, this isn't just about practical tips for decision-making. But if we would be wise unto salvation, we will also consider the consequences of our sins. Now, yes, certainly for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our sins have been visited upon His Son so that Christ has absorbed the penalty of our sins. But if we would continue to go on sinning in a pattern of sin, perhaps hiding our sin from others, we should expect that at some point our sin will find us out. Verse 10 of the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So the wise plan and prepare. So they're not primarily driven by their passions. But we need wisdom because wisdom can sometimes function as this kind of straitjacket. When we would be tempted by our carnal desires, wisdom can function like a kite to the string of our passions so that we're not sort of being led astray by every wind of passion. Wind, or rather wisdom, can be sort of a leash to ravenous passion. It is wisdom that enables us to pause, to think, to reflect, to pray, to seek godly counsel and advice. Now, anyone can plan, anyone can prepare, right? Even a secular person can plan and prepare, and there is a measure of wisdom in doing so. But the difference between the person who is characterized by folly, who still plans and prepares, and the person who walks in the way of the Lord is that the person who walks in the way of the Lord plans and prepares with an eye towards God. I mean, how often do we get ourselves into trouble by planning things out and then praying for God's blessing? I haven't done that before. You plan, you strategize, you systematize, you set the plan in motion, you know exactly what you want to do, you go in that direction you want, and then you pray for God's blessing. And if you haven't been met with trouble in cases like that, it's because God's been gracious to you. Or perhaps you've had the opposite example when you've done that and you have been met with nothing but obstacles, perhaps to try to get you to learn a lesson that you must plan and prepare with an eye towards God. And why would you not plan and prepare with an eye towards God? Because God is a God who is gracious and compassionate, who is a father to his people, who cares about the life of his people. So why would you not include the Lord as you prepare and as you plan, as you consider your ways, whether it's career choice, whether it's how you find, handle your finances? 
the Lord knows what is best for each and every one of us. And sometimes it's not consistent with what we want. But faith is trusting in the God who cares for us and that his ways are better than ours. Psalm 37, 23 tells us the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. What a wonderful truth that that psalm says, that those who walk in the fear of the Lord essentially tells us that God delights in his way. Though you, when you walk in a way of wisdom, when you wear the crown of wisdom that is walking in the fear of the Lord, God establishes your steps and he delights in your way. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Or some translations say the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? So folly, as I, if you might remember from last week, in describing some of the characteristics of the person of folly, one of those characteristics is that they don't stop talking. They like to listen to themselves and not listen to others. In addition to that, they have a tendency to speak about things that they don't quite understand as if they knew them and give off the impression as if they are more knowledgeable than they really are. Now, it's not saying that the person of folly doesn't ever have anything good to say, but it says that the general character of his words from beginning to end are folly. In large part, the reason why they are folly is because they are not seasoned with the flavor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because their heart hasn't been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But a person given to foolish talk is consumed by his foolish talk. The words, his words consume his reputation. We saw in verse 3 last week where it says in chapter 10, verse 3, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool, so he cannot display his foolishness. The words of a fool impact or consume his character. James, chapter 3, verse 6 says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, sitting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. The words of a fool impact his good or his ability to do good with his words. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. Only those who have been, whose words are flavored with the gospel of Jesus Christ can speak to one another as to build them up, to encourage them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas a person of folly cannot do that kind of good to others. And lastly, the words of a fool consume the man himself. 
Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Wisdom shuts the gate of our mouth when we would otherwise be tempted to revile and slander others. Wisdom responds with grace instead of anger. Wisdom knows when to listen and when to speak. Wisdom perfumes our words so that we may say those things that build up instead of tear down. The minister Charles Bridges says, The person of wisdom considers his tongue as a talent to be used for his master's glory. And having his heart as a treasury filled with the things of God, his gracious words will be full of power. Few can listen without being wiser and better. God, give to us this treasury of the things of your word so that we might speak gracious words to one another so as to build one another up. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. You can go to a bookstore, right, and you can go through all the different categories, all the different sections, and you will find so many different things written. And they're written by people who are incredibly knowledgeable about their given subject, perhaps even considered to be an expert in that topic. Or maybe they know several different topics so well that they write books about them. And certainly we can glean some things, some knowledge from the things that they write. But it's a fundamental difference between us as those who intend to live the good life as defined by the Scriptures and those who do not. And that is that we have two very different worldviews. We live our lives under two very different realities. One is under the reality of God and Christ and the other is without that reality. And so we can take those words and the things that they write, but we consider them through the lens of Scripture, and that is how we grow in wisdom. But as knowledgeable as man may be about the topics that they write about, they're nowhere near as wise as those who heed the careful instructions and the commands of the Lord. Because as knowledgeable as that person might be, they are still navigating life without a map or a compass. By the way, do you know what the one of the most or the best selling category of books is? It's actually romantic. It's a romantic category. Romantic slash erotic. So things like Fifty Shades of Grey. That's actually very telling about what society pursues and what it's entertained by, and what it loves, and what it's after. And actually, in the top five is actually spirituality and religion. It's another best-selling category. But I bet that a lot of what's out there isn't actually very good. As Christians, as believers, as those 
who desire to walk in the way of the Lord, we may not be as knowledgeable as the world is when, when it comes to how the world works, but we do know one thing, because we carry with us a compass and a map. We do know those things that help us to walk in a way of wisdom. Because the person who does not walk in the fear of the Lord forsakes the compass of his life. And the person who does not abide by the words of the Lord forsakes the map. And so they wander aimlessly throughout the world. They do not know where they're going, though they think that they are going in the right direction. But as the scriptures tell us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. According to the scriptures, we know the general geography of our life. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and it is narrow that leads to death or leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And the way is hard for many reasons. One reason we will get to in a moment but the wide way, the wide way is easy. That is the way that everyone thinks they're going is the right way. It is the way of plurality, where everybody thinks that their truth is their truth and that their truth is an impede with somebody else's truth and they can all coexist in harmony with one another, which doesn't quite make any sense. It's an age of plurality of truth, a fluidity of identity, right? If you read the headlines, you see what's in the news, people can identify in whatever way they want. They can be whatever gender they want. They can even identify as an animal if they like, and that's actually a reality. People do do that. Where meaning can be derived from anything or any person, or meaning can be whatever I want it to be. But as the scriptures say, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. And Jesus tells us the general geography of those who walk in the way of wisdom, and that is, it is the narrow gate. It is the way that is hard, but it is the only way that leads to heaven. It is the only way that leads to eternal life. It is the only way that leads to the Father. It is the only way that leads to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself being the way. Even as we walk in this narrow way, right, we're adorned with wisdom. Not only that, but it also comes with a guide and a map. Right? Each and every believer is given the Holy Spirit of God, who is the one who guides us into all truth, who sanctifies us, who comforts us, who strengthens us in our weaknesses, who prays for us in our weaknesses. And we have the map of his word that helps us to know the way in which we should go, that helps us to direct our steps, that helps us to know exactly what to do and how to live our lives in this world that is anti-God. And the scriptures say that this narrow way is the good life. Now the contrast continues, and the passage now takes us to consider the way of the foolish ruler and the way of the wise. 
going back to chapter or verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now the preacher, most likely King Solomon, he's not in any way trying to favor those who are rich or favor those who are royalty like kings and princes and disfavor the lowly and the poor. But he's presenting to us another contrast. He's contrasting the fool and the princes. He continues to come to this theme of how we might not always expect or how we might not always see what we expect, that things don't always go the way that we expect them to. And it's one of those cases where we see something that we should not expect, where we see something that is in some ways scandalous, and then he actually considers it to be a great evil. That is when you have foolish people as rulers who also then go on to set up other foolish princes and rulers over a people. And you have others living as slaves that you might expect should be in those positions of rule. This is a theme that we continue to see. And even in the eyes of the world, even for a secular person, right, you might, the secular person might expect that the ones who are leading, who should be leading, are the ones who should be most equipped who are most knowledgeable, perhaps most educated, perhaps the most trained, because those are the ones who are most equipped for these positions of leadership and authority. But as we saw last week, if you might remember, it was the poor, wise man who saved the city and not the king, showing us that wisdom is often found in places where we least expect to find it. This also points us to a pattern of scriptures that we consistently see from beginning to end, and it is a pattern that even to the secular person, to the unbeliever, is quite scandalous and doesn't make sense. God chose Abraham, who was a pagan and an idolater, out of his pagan world to be the channel of blessing to many nations. God took a man who was raised in Egypt, under the gods of Egypt, with a speech impediment, and made him to be the leader of God's people, delivering, him, delivering them from slavery in Egypt. God took a young shepherd boy and made him one of the greatest kings in Israel. And that pattern continues even into the New Testament, where we read of Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, as he's described in the scriptures. And this king we would expect to be born perhaps in a palace, but he wasn't. He was born in a manger. We might expect this king to be robed with majesty and splendor. Instead, he takes on human identity, human flesh, and dresses himself with the robes of a servant. You might expect this king to be seated with those who are the most wisest in the world, with the religious teachers, with emperors, with rulers, with authorities. Instead, he eats and dines with sinners. And how did they treat this king? They mocked him, and they beat him, and they crucified him. And on that cross, he died. 
because the people of his day could not imagine that this would be their king. Because they expected something different, because they expected something more. But we know from the scriptures that Jesus wasn't just human. Jesus wasn't just a servant, but Jesus was also king. And yet, we read in Philippians 2.6 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a king that the world might expect to be served, but instead this king came to serve. As Mark says, to give his life as a ransom for many. But we also know that the story doesn't end there, for he rose from the dead three days later, and he was ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God. And Jesus and the scriptures, rather, tells us this about Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, that Christ Jesus has become the power and the wisdom of God. The power and wisdom of God, the power of God to save sinners from the judgment that their sins deserve. The wisdom of God in declaring those who are sinners who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ as righteous and justified and declared innocent from all wrongdoing. And in addition to that, 1 Corinthians 26 says concerning you and I who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The passage is not intended to insult any of us, but it's intended to tell us that God chose those who may not have been the most intelligent, the most wise, the one who had done the most good works. But you and I have been chosen by the sheer grace and mercy of God to be saved through the power and wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world might consider this as foolish. But as those who are crowned with wisdom, it should not matter all that much what the world thinks. What should matter most to us is what God thinks of us. That's what the passage says. Jesus became to us righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and also became to us wisdom. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 
So we've been saved through the power and wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, through our union with him, we then also are considered to be wise for our giving our lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is important for us as we consider the last section of this passage. Verse 16 says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So we turn here to the theme of foolish kings. A wise king is a blessing to his people, and a foolish king is a curse to his people and his land. And we have here a description of a foolish king. This kind of king is given to the appeasing of his appetites. He's hedonistic. He lives for pleasure. He's like a child without self-control. He's led by his emotions, led by his passion, led by his flesh. There's a kind of king who cannot discern the times. Like a young child who cannot be able to tell the time, this kind of king does not discern when it is time to war and when it is time for peace, when it is the time to mourn and what is the time to celebrate, when it is a time to eat and what is a time to fast. This kind of king is characterized by inactivity. He's slothful. He doesn't do much. He doesn't get things done. The roof has caved in because he kept putting off the small or kept putting off the small leak in the roof. So that yesterday's procrastination becomes today's disaster. And because he governs a people, his decisions have repercussions for everyone else. And a passage points us to the unbreakable link between those who rule and his people. But what we also learn from this passage as we consider the good life is that kings or rulers that are characterized by folly can make those of us who endeavor to live the good life painstakingly difficult. Jesus makes clear that the narrow way is hard that leads to life. We know that for a fact. It is certain. If you live for a Christian long enough, you know that living as a Christian is hard. But having rulers above us who are characterized by folly who do not walk in the ways of the Lord, who do not love God, who do not care for God, only make our lives that much harder. I mean, their decisions can impact just about everything in our lives, such as how we educate our children, to even how oh, the kind of cars that we will buy years from now, to when we can leave our homes, to when is it appropriate for the people of God to come together. how much we will spend on groceries and filling up our cars with gasoline. Many of the reasons we often feel tension in our lives as Christians is aggravated because of decisions that come from the top. Now the passage cautions us against slandering and responding in anger because that would be sinful. 
but it is not slanderous to admit to ourselves that we are under an administration that is not friendly towards Christians. And therefore, we should expect that it would only get harder. That being the case, hardship in life is no excuse for foolish living. What we are called to do is to simply stay the course, apply the wisdom of the Scriptures, apply the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. We continue to follow the compass of the Holy Spirit, and we continue to follow the map of God's Word. So we show restraint when we show, should show restraint. We keep ourselves from responding in an evil or slanderous manner. Even though sometimes your life may feel like a ship surrounded by heavy fog, navigating under dark skies, upon dark waters, it's hard to see sometimes beyond the dense fog to see what awaits to try to plan ahead to see if there's some kind of hope beyond the fog. And you might be tended to pursue a different course or to turn back. But if you continue to follow the map of his word, it will never lead you astray. It will continue to be your wisdom in trying times. It will help you to make it past the dense fog to be able to see the lighthouse that guides your way safely to land. What does it look like to live the good life, the life crowned with wisdom, when life is made much more difficult by rulers above us? And the preacher has answered that question earlier before. He tells us, enjoy the basic things that God has given to you. God has put food on your table. Praise God for it. Enjoy it to the glory of God. As God has put drink on your table, praise God for it. He has provided for you. Enjoy it to the glory of God. If God has provided for you a spouse, love your spouse to the glory of God. If God has given you a job to work at, or whatever assignment that God has given to you, work hard and well at it, at it to the glory of God. If I may add, we also pray that the Lord would hasten His return. No matter who is the person who sits above us, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, whether whoever it is, we need to remember and understand that our salvation will ultimately not come from a president. But our salvation comes from the king who has already redeemed us from our sins and reconciled us to God and has promised that he will one day return. And so as, uh, along with applying the things that he has applied uh, or has uh, implored us to apply, pray that God would hasten the day when Jesus Christ the King will return for his people and establish his rule and reign on this earth. Because only then can we actually live the good life unimpeded by sin, unimpeded by our flesh, unimpeded by the world, and unimpeded by rulers who are pagan and hate God. And so may the Lord hasten that day, and may we long for that day, may we pray for that day unceasingly until the Lord returns and comes for his people. 